0: Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Season 2 of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist Exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy.
1: Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did.
0: This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Hey guys, we have talked a lot about how we use the MedBridge PCS prep course to develop our study plan and as an awesome supplemental resource for the PCS exam. Not only are there copious amounts of videos, but they also include practice exams, recommended readings, and other resources to add to your toolbox. To celebrate Physical Therapy Month, MedBridge is running a special on their premium subscription for just $225 if you use the code PTMPUSHINGPEDS. You can also click on the link in the episode notes. These subscriptions are good for one year of content and gives you premium access, including their PCS prep content.
1: Even if you are not studying for the PCS, you can still use this discount code for continuing education credits. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. Hurry, this special priced PT month promotion ends on October 31st. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam by no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
0: Hey guys, this week and in the next weeks going forward, we have some really special content to share with you. We are going to be interviewing pediatric physical therapists across all settings with some faces you may recognize and others that are new to you. Our goal with these episodes is to bring you all information that is pertinent to your studying for the PCS exam, such as content you should be aware of. This week, we're introducing you to Marissa Heilig, one of the faces behind the Instagram pediatric physical therapy. If you don't already follow them, definitely check them out. They post weekly pediatric NPTE questions and answers and provide some great resources. We love their content on Instagram and are so excited to have Marissa on this week. Welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, Marissa.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: We're really excited to have you this week, Marissa. Being a school-based therapist myself, I love talking to other school-based therapists about their experience and the kids that they work with. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself?
2: I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I graduated with my DPT from the University at Buffalo in 2018. I started my career at a school in Buffalo where I actually did one of my final clinical rotations. I was there for a year and a half, and then I moved to Queens, where I currently live and work.
1: I love this because I'm actually from Rochester, so we used to be quote-unquote neighbors at one point. Also, Bills fan, I would assume?
0: Absolutely. Go Bills. (laughs) That's too funny. Josh Allen is America's quarterback. Sarah and I trade off writing episodes. I wonder if people can tell like which episode each of us writes, Um, but clearly she wrote this one. I am a Vikings fan. I grew up in Minnesota. So anyways, back to the episode. Marissa, tell us your background in the school setting.
2: Sure. So In PT school, they were really great about letting us shadow in multiple settings. We had so many opportunities. I was able to shadow in a few school settings. I really realized that I enjoyed those the most. So I made it a priority to be placed in schools for clinical rotations. My school was also excellent with our more concrete clinical placements. We actually did 52 weeks or a full year of full-time rotations, And I was able to spend 24 weeks full time across about five different schools between Buffalo and Long Island, as well as a pediatric outpatient setting. So like I said before, I was hired at one of those schools right after graduation that served kids with complex medical and behavioral conditions ages three to 21. I obtained so much invaluable experience here. And then I moved to Queens, where I currently am, and I work in a special education preschool that serves mainly students with autism and general developmental delay. I also do uh, virtual and home-based settings for school-age students after hours.
1: It sounds like you have a lot of experience with children
2: with many different diagnoses.
1: Are there any rules and regulations that our listeners and those taking the PCS exam need to
2: be aware of in the school-based setting? So in the school-based setting, everything is dictated by the IEP, the Individualized Education Program. It's a legal document. It details all the mandated services the student is eligible for, including how often and where the services take place. While students may have multiple impairments, the goals of therapy must be school-centric and directly related to function within the school environment.
1: Exactly. This is definitely one of the major differences between the school-based setting and others. Like Marissa said, the goals of therapy must be related back to the child's ability to access their education. An IEP is written initially because a child needs special education services. They determine where the least restrictive environment is for the student to receive their education. The IEP team then determines what the child may need to improve or work on to access their educational environment and reach educational goals. From there, they determine what related services, such as PT, OT, speech, and nursing, the child needs to best access their environment. If you haven't listened to our school based physical therapy episode in season one, definitely check it out. MedBridge also has some really good school-based content that was really informative and broke down the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, really well. Some really great school-based fact sheets include educationally relevant physical therapy parts one and two, and providing physical therapy under the IDEA part B. We will link these in the show notes for you.
0: For someone who has never worked in the educational environment, I found the MedBridge and Sheet resources really helpful in my own studying. They were just a little bit more condensed and presented the material a little bit more like a review, so it felt a little bit easier for me to ingest because it all felt very foreign especially since most of my experience was in outpatient pediatrics, which is just so different, right? Because there could definitely be a kid that could qualify for an outpatient type setting that just wouldn't qualify in the schools. And I think it's important that we also have that knowledge to explain to families because that might be an area of frustration for them as well. So Marissa, what does a typical history and system review look like in the school-based setting specifically?
2: So like you just said, school-based services have to be justified by evidence of decreased function in the school setting. So my first question is always related to investigating where the student's function and participation are currently decreased. I'll speak to the teacher, the current therapist, cause we love a multidisciplinary approach and teamwork, the parent, any other team members such as a paraprofessional or a teaching assistant, I'll observe the student in the classroom to get an idea of their posture, how their desk is set up, how they navigate the classroom. If I can watch them transition from one area of the school to another, if they have to go up or down a flight of stairs or like how are they doing in the hallways, just kind of investigate all of that. And then after that observation, if I'm seeing what the concerns were that were reported to me, I'll pull them out for a standardized test after receiving permission from the district and the parent. And in my preschool, we are using the Peabody, the PDMS2. And then after that, after it's all scored out, I will call the parent to review the results and ask more questions about if they have any significant birth history, did they achieve their milestones on time? Do they have any significant medical or surgical history? Are they on medications? Do they see specialists? kind of more of like background information to see if there's anything that could be pointing to maybe why we see this decrease in function. And then I'll also just ask the parent, does how I'm reporting how your child performed sound accurate to how they do at home and in the community? And of course, does the parent have any concerns?
1: When you're performing the evaluations and talking to the parents, teachers, et cetera, what are some red flags that you may see in the school-based setting that cue you to refer out or contact the PCP?
2: So recently I've been evaluating an increased number of kids where I'm really suspicious of visual impairments. For example, I just evaluated a child who was super hesitant on the stairs. Um, It kind of sounded like they were stomping their foot down to the next step. Like they didn't know where that step was below them. They needed support to step over anything on the floor. Um, They were consistently over or undershooting. Whenever I asked them, we have that little piggy bank toy with the coins. I feel like everybody has. And I was asking them to put the coins into the piggy bank consistently overshooting or undershooting. Um, After that evaluation, I talked to the mom and I ended up writing down concerns for her to take to an appointment that she said that she would make for the child. And I've seen just a bunch of other kids where their eyes aren't tracking symmetrically. They seem really startled when I toss them a ball. So I've been referring a lot of kids out for vision. I've also referred kids out to Neuro and ortho whenever I want extra eyes or a second opinion on something like a child who has significantly impaired balance or if they are significantly in tripping over their feet and it's something that I feel needs to be addressed by more than just their ex.
1: Shout out to our vision therapists. I love working with them in school and feel very fortunate that my school has them. I think visual impairment is something that can go unnoticed at times or isn't thought of. So great thinking on that, Marissa.
0: I'm remembering too. I think that this kind of helps us tie in some of this to the PCS exam because one, there is a lot of visual stuff that you need to kind of be familiar with. So you need to look back and make sure that you're studying that stuff. I think some of the things that get missed in studying is the reaching, when some of that stuff develops. As physical therapists, we're not as good at looking at some of that stuff, especially if we're in a multidisciplinary approach with our OTs, but it is definitely testable material and something that people need to look at. All right. So I know we've kind of talked a lot about this, but what other things are you looking at in an exam outside of maybe their function in the school setting with specific tasks?
2: Yeah. So back to basics. So just looking at their posture, both sitting at their desk and standing, protective and writing responses. I have I hear all the time from parents and from teachers, well, they're just falling all of the time. And the first follow-up question I have to that is, are they putting their hands out and are they protecting themselves? Because I have some kids who definitely don't, and that's a big concern in the school environment if we're at a higher risk for a head injury. Um, Doing a gait analysis, all the skills from the Peabody, Just a quick assessment of muscle tone, range of motion, reflexes, again, back to basics. And then also their transitions, because I feel like I can get a lot of information about their general strength motor planning coordination just by watching them get up off the floor.
1: What outcome measures do you use frequently or do you see frequently?
2: So, again, the Peabody is definitely number one because I am in the preschool setting. I have used the PD as supporting evidence for children who Are obviously going to score poorly on the Peabody. And with a score that is just significantly low, I mean, it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't really tell you that much. So I like to use something else just to get more information about their level of support that they need. That helps to justify a higher level of support, like a one to one paraprofessional. And then I've also done the bot a ton with my older school-age kids and the SFA. I really like the School of Functional Assessment because, again, I feel like that just gives more information. I feel like the PD and the SFA give more information that is more easily ingested by people who are not PTs because I feel like it's easier to see the clear impact in the school environment with those test items versus the more specific Peabody or Bot where those are more like, okay, jump forward 24 inches. Like what does that mean to somebody who doesn't have a PT background versus like, okay, this child needs assistance to walk 50 feet down the hallway. I feel like that's more helpful information for somebody who's just sitting at an IEP meeting who doesn't have the background that we do.
0: And I think helping with goal writing too, right? Yeah, They're just, it's much easier to plug in that function in the school setting again, versus how do I translate uh, they can't jump 24 inches to why they can't do X, Y, or Z in the school.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with the SFA too, there are graphs and ways that you can develop goals based on their score on the SFA too, which I think is kind of unique and it's very, very, very functional in the school environment. And not for nothing, I think a lot of adults would fail the bot if they looked at Mm -hmm. some items on there. So I feel like sometimes the bot's not always fair to some of our kids that maybe you need either We don't, they wouldn't need services in the school environment, but maybe like you were saying, Sheila could benefit from outpatient services, but none of their deficits are actually affecting their ability to function in school. One of the items that I always go back to on the bot is jumping jacks. And there are some kids who just can't get, can't do a jumping jack. They can kind of do it, but it's a really, really hard movement. But just because you can't do a jumping jack perfectly doesn't necessarily mean you're not functioning at the level you need to be at
2: in school, right? Sure. I think so many op- so many of the skills on the bot too just are not functional movements that you perform every day, like that itsy bitsy spider thumb to index finger or jumping with your arms and legs in sync, like b- both right arm right leg together and then left arm. Like nobody is doing that. <laughs>
0: Right. And I always go back to that doesn't mean that they don't have deficits or that they wouldn't really benefit from some sort of targeted coordination work that might carry over and help with something else in their global life. But that's not necessarily a school job. That's not a school therapist intervention. And so really making sure that we're understanding the purpose of each of the disciplines and the specific practice areas of physical therapy. Going back to what we were talking about, now we've qualified the kid for services. We've said you need PT in the school. So now let's talk a little bit about what your interventions kind of look like at the school level.
2: Yeah, so at my school specifically, most of my kids are ambulatory, so we're doing a lot of Therax at this age, and I think at any age, they love obstacle courses and repetitions. So usually each session or each week, I'm switching up the elements to focus on whatever we need to. And then if I have you know, kids within the same day that have different things they need to work on, it's really easy to just swap out one or two things in that obstacle course to make it more appropriate for whatever kid I'm bringing in. Um, most of them have low muscle tone, generalized weakness, delayed jumping, So we're doing a lot of climbing, a lot of crawling, and a lot of jumping taps. More specific interventions, I do do kinesio taping with some of my toe walkers and my low tone kids with poor posture. Shout out to Dr. J-Pop and the rock tape course. (laughs) That's the course that I took. And most interestingly, one thing that I did recently is I built a PVC A pipe walker for one of my kids who is learning to walk independently. We're doing a lot of balance and gait training, but that was something I was a little bit proud of recently um, that I thought was one of the more unique aspects of my job.
1: I love that you were able to get creative and build a PVC walker for your student. What type of education do you provide? Who do you provide this this education to?
2: Mostly I'm providing education to the parents since they are not present for the sessions. All these sessions are occurring during the school day. So a lot of them want home exercise programs and regular updates on their child's progress. It is so helpful when the families are involved. You know, seeing a kid out of the classroom twice a week for 30 minutes is just a small part of their week. And they really need that home carryover to help progress them. I also provide education to the teachers and the paraprofessionals if there's anything that needs to be carried over in the classroom. So for example, that student I built the PVC walker for, I had to teach someone in the classroom how to transfer that student in and out of their transport chair and how to support them when they were performing hygiene tasks in the bathroom and just how to walk with them in the hallway. So that was a fun education session.
0: How do you determine your dosage and frequency of treatment sessions and interventions?
2: So I'm working under the New York City Department of Education. And in the New York City Department of Education, the therapists do not have the ultimate say in the therapy mandate. It's decided by the district administrators ultimately at the IEP meeting. We can advocate and we can recommend as much as we can. The most common mandate in my school is two times a week for 30 minutes. Most kids start there unless they have a very significant impairment. They might get three times a week for 30 minutes. And we increase and decrease based on the achievement of their age-appropriate skills and safety in the school environment. In the first school I worked in in Buffalo, kids received anywhere from one time a week for 30 minutes up to three times a week for 60 minutes. That was determined by time needed to transfer them in and out of equipment, if they were utilizing any specific interventions like Eastim, the light gate, power wheelchair training, anything that was going to take a little bit more time to set up, or if they needed to use a lift to get in and out of a wheelchair or other equipment, we were allotted more time for that.
1: I would say we see about the same in my school. We also provide a lot of consultative services as well. I personally work mostly with students above the age of 12, 13. For more information from the APTA on dosing in the school environment, check out their fact sheet, Dosing Considerations, Recommending School-Based Physical Therapy Intervention under IDEA. We will link this in the show notes for you, and we went over this fact sheet in Season 1, Episode 20.
0: I feel like I can't say this enough, but the APTA fact sheets on school-based services are really good. They're literally under their own heading in the fact sheet section. We went over this all last season, but I just feel like that is still like a resource. It is free you should be reading all of your fact sheets period done this is the kind of stuff that you need to know and then additionally i think i don't even know if we've ever mentioned this but the fact sheets alone have usually about a page of resources attached to them so you can also continue if there's an area that you feel like you need more information on or even with the education stuff like they link the actual federal laws that you need to know so Go there, check through the resources, be reading your fact sheets. They're super important. So now we've talked about our eval, we've talked about interventions. When do we know when discharge is appropriate for a kid in the school environment?
2: So again, keyword in the school environment. So when the child has achieved age appropriate performance and function in the school environment. Those foundational gross motor skills to make sure they are safe on the stairs, the playground and in the classroom and hallways.
1: I would also add into that, that with the older students, when they've plateaued in their skills or have reached their ability potential within the school environment. This is typically when we utilize consultative services or monitoring services to ensure that the child does not regress in their skills or if they need assistance while transitioning to a new phase in life, such as working In a job for example i have a student right now who's been on consultative services for the past couple of years because he really didn't need school-based therapy anymore was completely functional in gym completely functional within his classroom on the stairs and everything But now he's a little bit older, he's 17, and he's starting to have some more struggles, show a little bit of regression, and is going to get ready to go out into the community. So we're reassessing him to see if school-based services are appropriate for him. So Marissa, what are some clinical pearls from your practice that you think people should know to be an expert in the school-based setting?
2: So I feel like we've touched on this kind of throughout the episode where we're really emphasizing these are school-based services. So in my opinion, school-based services are provided to ensure the student is safe, functional, and happy at school. So sometimes kids present with, quote, decreased skills that aren't necessarily impacting them in the school environment. I have gotten so many requests from teachers to evaluate or screen kids on the autism spectrum that don't jump down from a step or throw a ball to a target, but otherwise they are safe, they are happy, they are participating within their desired level at school. So I think it's important in these situations to ask if PT would meaningfully improve the student's experience at school. Some kids become distressed when prompted and Coached through non preferred activities. And you have to wonder in those moments if the pros are really outweighing the cons. I think a wise therapist looks beyond standardized scores and instead appreciates the whole child within the context of the school based environment.
1: This is definitely something that could impact your decision to recommend therapy for a child in the school based setting and something to consider, as this is very different from other settings. Marissa, I totally agree with you on this. I get a lot of teachers that also request evaluations for children who maybe can't catch a ball. As long as it's not impacting their ability to participate in their educational environment or gym class, or they're similar to other peers in their class, which is more, I think, appropriate for the kids that I work with that are very complex, It may not necessarily be appropriate to recommend services at that time. And also something to remember too is not all kids want to play sports or play with a ball. I had this conversation with a mom um, a few weeks ago when I did an evaluation on her son and he was four, Um, but mom said that he loved planets and loved reading and loved science and loved writing. And You know, he, his ball skills were not fantastic, but he was four and doesn't like playing sports. So, you know, for that kid specifically, it's not totally affecting his ability to participate in his educational environment. The fact that he just, you know, maybe doesn't want to play sports during recess and maybe would choose to read a book instead. However, if the child gets older and then begins to struggle or fall behind because of a skill, then another evaluation may be warranted. I think that one thing that impacted my approach to the school-based setting after studying for the PCS exam was really the reason for the IEP and also just the information provided on the IDEA in general. We learn about it in PT school, but not as in-depth as for this exam. I've definitely improved my goal writing and intervention focus for my students because I'm working to make their goals more functional, achievable, and meaningful to the school environment.
0: Definitely. I feel like we've hit on all of this stuff a lot, but this really shows us the difference between the settings and why each of the settings is important in pediatric physical therapy. That's why these different areas exist because we can really tailor what the child needs to all aspects of their life. Marissa, do you have any last minute study tips or thoughts for our listeners?
2: So I love being a school-based therapist because of my proximity to the speech, mental health, occupational therapists, teachers, other professionals. I'm always learning from them and collaborating. So my pearl would be Take advantage of the multidisciplinary approach. It will make you a better PT. Also, building strong relationships with your students' families. It takes extra effort in this setting because you may never meet them in person, but it is so worth it. I have a Google Voice number that I give to all my families. It's free to sign up for a Google Voice number, as well as my school email address. And just that quick text I might send during the day of, Hey, your kid, um, you know, did this for the first time today, or they had a really good day today or something. Building that relationship with them is so valuable for the kid. It makes their buy-in for home exercise programs, or if, um, you need their support on anything. Like, for example, sometimes my kid's need might need like a different pair of shoes, I think would be better for them. And so just being able to have that relationship of, of trust of, Hey, I need you to go out and maybe like spend money and get this pair of shoes or get something, you know, whatever, just having that relationship and that collaboration is so important in this setting.
1: Marissa, thank you so much for answering all of these questions for us. We really appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you on social media?
0: On Instagram,
2: I am at pediatric physical therapy, all one word, no spaces, no underscores.
0: Yes, we love it. We found you guys when we were studying for our exam um, and we appreciated it so much. It was just another place for us to review. And you guys always do such a great job at adding resources in. And that is it for this episode. Join us later this week for another Case Files Friday and happy studying.
1: Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time.
0: And remember, you totally got it.